and welcome to the Home Lab Show. Ooh, forgot to look at the episode number, but I think, what are we up to, Jay? This is... Isn't it 62 or am I 62. mistaken? Wow. See, yep, it is 62. I got distracted because yep. we started a couple minutes late. Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 62, Q&A episode. We uh, love when all of you contact us and message us, and uh, especially when you put it in the form on our website, which is, this is the Google Sheets for full disclosure because it's easy and it collects all that data for us. And we like marking these things in a spreadsheet. So the... Uh, questions we have enough of them to do a Q&A episode and before we do that let's really quickly thank a sponsor show and that is Linode. Uh, Linode has been with us since pretty much the beginning here I think only one or two episodes wasn't sponsored by Linode thus far and we've been happy with them and I know a lot of you have uh, had a good time setting up and using some of the tools with Linode to put some of the projects we talked about in play or you know some we, we get its home lab, but occasionally some things do need to go in the cloud. And if you need to put it in the cloud, Linode's a great place to do that. We have an offer code of Linode slash the home lab show. If you'd like to sign up with them, we thank them for being a sponsor of the show. And let's get started with the QA. Yep, let's do it. So um there's a several different ones we could start with, but one thing I do want to mention is that. There's like, and this is interesting. It's almost like a lot of the fans just got together. Like they met up somewhere and they're like, <laughs> we need to all ask about the same thing. Cause I don't think I've ever seen like so many things about the same thing. And yeah. literally um, actually two things that, that came up was RDP or similar related things like uh, connecting remotely. And also like user directories came up a lot. So those are definitely things that we're going to be considering for future topics yes um th the fact that we had like i don't know how many like <laughs> a lot of 15, the same 15. questions <laughs> i'm just joking it wasn't quite 15 but yeah yeah well that's definitely something we will consider and we tom and i just need to talk more about it and plan yep. it yeah and, and those topics are going to be around how do you centrally manage users whether or not you use active directory these are some weird questions for home lab people so i'll go on the assumption that they're home lab people wanting to get more into the enterprise side of when you do need to use and federate with active directory and things like that but we'll we'll make those yeah. as some topics because there's, there's a lot of discussion to be had around um doing centralized user management and ip management and radius servers and ldap servers and free ipa and pam authentication and <laughs> It just goes there, on there's and on. so many things. And I, I love these topics because they, um, you know, I'll be the first to admit, I am not an expert on LDAP. I mean, I know what it is. I know the problem it solves. I, I have managed it. I have managed Active Directory. So I do have experience. I don't have the experience of like a Windows domain admin, that you know, someone that does this every day. But um, it, these are the type of topics that, that cause me to learn more, which is always a, a great situation when I learn more myself, and then I pass that on to other people, which is exactly why I do what I do. So this is another opportunity for me to, you know, be more, um, go go deeper into the subject. Yeah. The um, directory management is a little bit of a challenge, though, because this, I'll just at least get this answer right out of the way for people. There is not a direct one-to-one -one type of option inside of Linux that works as well or as thorough as Active Directory does for Windows. That's um, a thing that a lot of people ask just as a general broad question, but I'll throw it out there and everyone's like, well, you can kind of do it with Radius. You can kind of do it with that, but there's not really, it, there are of course servers and someone's going to bring up, I think it's called Zentil server. It can emulate 
Active Directory, but I'm really not sure what the future looks like for any type of uh, system or platform on Linux that emulates Active Directory. A lot of times you just go with Active Directory if you want the full features of it. And it's usually because you're dealing with mixed environments because you can tie other things in the open source and home lab world to Active Directory. TrueNAS is an easy example. PFSense can be tied to it. Lots of other projects have the ability to interface with it for central authentication, but the opposite is very much not true. It's not Windows doesn't necessarily work nearly as well with any of the smaller solutions that run on Linux to yep. manage your Windows servers. So, and if you get into, yeah. we can... We can complain all day about Microsoft, but if you want to work in the commercial space and you work with end users, you will run into the Microsoft beast that is Active Directory. So, um, or even the Azure AD, the cloud version of it. So there's, it, it's definitely something you can't ignore if you plan to work in a space, unless your space is only the Linux space, not anything end users do. So uh, I, it's not going away anytime soon, but it's still really cool. And I do sure. like that uh, we have one IT career questions in the chat and he said, Novell is making a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be the comeback story of the year. That'd be um, the comeback story of the year. So, <laughs> so yeah, to, to build further on what you were saying, um, with the disclaimer that I feel like I'm at best intermediate with LDAP, because I'm going to be full, you know, people say, oh, you're the expert. Well, I, I might be on some things, but I am also human. And anyway, what it seems like to me is that when it comes to Microsoft, and I don't, I don't really know if they're still like this now because I got to give them credit. You know, they've done some pretty good things. I mean, they're, they've not been, you know, nearly as toxic as they have before. Uh, they love Linux apparently. So there's that, but it seems like they get technologies that are cross platform and they make them proprietary, which, you know, it is so true that active directory works better with, you know, windows works better with active directory. I mean, that's just the case, but then also keep in mind, it's like, it's almost like Microsoft gets LDAP which is not system specific, platform specific. You could just use it. it it's a, you know pretty much a standard. But let's just add some proprietary bits that are Windows specific on top of that. And of course, the entire industry is going to hook into Microsoft because you know they're Microsoft. So then Active Directory itself, even though it, you could argue that a lot of the underlying technologies are exactly the same, they made it custom just like with you know, Microsoft SQL, the syntax is pretty much the same, but it's Microsoft SQL. There's some specifics there um, when, it, when compared to MySQL, a number of other things. So um, to me, it almost seems like there is a standard, but Microsoft just takes a standard and makes it like just focused on their platform. And unfortunately, like you're saying, I mean, when you buy like pretty much an enterprise device, it's it's wanting to hook into Active Directory because that's what they assume that everybody has. So it's going to be one of those situations when we do make an episode about this topic where there's going to be some situations where some home lab people may not want the burden, but then also they might want to run Active Directory if they have that at work and they want to learn it. So there's there's different um, angles we can approach this, and I think it's going to be a actually a fun topic when we when we get time to do that. Yeah, it's also, uh, I'll answer this question working in the enterprise space, even with some very large companies, brands you may have heard of, um, people always ask, but Tom, don't they have all their IP addresses and MAC addresses and a radius server and everything's properly assigned to every network and everything goes really smooth? I'm like, it always started out that way. There were great intentions and then reality set in. And my favorite phrase, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. And that enemy is trying to manage, oh, I don't know, thousands of MAC addresses in a radius server. Everyone thinks you're going to control their environment perfectly. It is a worthy goal. 
And if your budget is unlimited, you may achieve said goal. Then you may realize the it is a lower priority because it's not the biggest security risk you face and uh, it is not the biggest challenge you'll face in enterprise uh, tech. So while some places may have that under managed, and I guarantee many home lab people do, uh, myself included, every MAC address is nicely reserved and organized in my network. Um, that is manageable and reasonable but as the network gets larger or to the scale of these large companies. Um, the goal is still there often to do that, but then they start breaking them apart going, what can we manage? What's reasonable to manage? And what are they going to give me the budget to manage? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, budget, if we had unlimited budget, I mean, imagine what all of our home labs would look like. But in addition to that, I mean, we have, so we have different home lab types of people, right? You have the ones that have a very functional, basic home lab, does what they needed to do, three, four different things in there works fine. And we have other people that, you know, have something that's gloriously overly complicated in all the right ways. And it's like, your network is better than the majority of corporate networks, like the consistency mm. that some people put into this. And um, I just love these types of things, because it's just um, the line between company and home you know, is thinning. And I'm not saying your home lab is going to be part of your company, but there be, there's so much in, in common with the technologies on both sides. But yeah, yeah. actually, I, I actually am gonna laugh at Jimmy, the IT guy's comment here. You need a radius department just for managing a, a large scale deployment. So you'd have a chief radius officer, I imagine as well. So you'd have an entire department just in charge of asset inventory and Mac addresses. <laughs> That's someone who's worked in corporate IT that knows. Oh, yeah, it's a everyone thinks it's just going to be magic. If you have a if you have radius in your job title and you talk to somebody who doesn't know any of this at all, it sounds cool. Like I am in charge of the radius. So that sounds super important to the the security of pretty much everything. Um, but it's not quite what people think. Yeah. It's, yeah. We'll, we'll make that a show topic, though, because I think it's a great I think it's a great idea because there's a lot to unpack. So me and Jay will definitely um, we have enough people asking the questions. There's obviously a demand for the knowledge. Uh, so we'll put together some show topics on that and kind of explain them uh, some of the options in there. So absolutely. That's um, I think I got to do a video on on this, because apparently when this many people are asking about it, it's a big deal. I need to totally we need to get on this. So, yep. Yep. Um. Let's see. I think also you would end up covering uh, how to do it with Ansible. I think that's, we started talking about that before the show. This, we got a well, little distracted. Jay, Jay would show how to do uh, management via Ansible to how to manage users and trigger uh, trigger changes. <laughs> yeah, but that's going to, see, I, I feel like when I get to that topic, it's going to trigger people in other ways too, because part of my argument is going to be that I don't feel Active Directory is necessary for as many things as people use it for. I'm not saying that there's no value. I'm not saying there's no benefit. There's no reason to use it. I'm not saying any of that, but I do feel there's situations where a configuration management server can do what a company is currently doing and they don't need Active Directory. But I know that's going to take people out of their comfort zone. So um, that'll be interesting to see the reaction. Yep. All right. What's the next question on our topics here? So one thing I could just bring up, I don't think it was so much of a question, but uh, Kurt wrote in um, regarding his home lab and, and other people have too. I, I feel like I need to pay more attention when people uh, talk about what they're running, because this is something that could inspire other people that might want to check out some of these things, some of the things that we may not always cover. But um, what he wrote in, and I'm just going to give some of the highlights here, uh, TrueNAS Core, uh, Plex File Server, um, Open, and this is interesting, Open Media Vault number one and number two. Now, hmm. 
I've heard of many people running Open Media Vault, and it's pretty cool. I like it. I've used it before, but having two of them, it's like, I don't. Um, how? Like, are they clustered? Are they just two separate things that you have things? They have replicated. I guess one could be a backup. Yeah, but but according here, I mean, it's like they both they're both running Docker, Portainer, um, Shinobi for the um, CCTV, which I haven't used yet myself. Um, Portainer I haven't used yet either. Docker, obviously, I've done a whole series on that. Um, there, there's there's a lot of cool um, aspects here about um, about his home lab, and I think that to me stood out like two Open Media Vault servers. That's pretty cool. Um, I, I'm just trying to think of all the things you could use a you, you know multiple um, Open Media Vault servers for. That's pretty cool. But uh, for the most part, I mean, it's pretty neat to hear what people are running and how they have things set up. So that was pretty cool. That was in response to um, another inquiry in the past. So I figured I would mention that if, if people want to check out Open Media Vault, um, that's the main reason why I picked that question or that statement. Um, you know, TrueNAS is great. It's what I use. I love it. But um, Open Media Vault's cool too. So if you want to go that direction, I don't feel like you'll be disappointed in that decision. I think it's it's working pretty well from everything I've known about it. So that could be an alternative for somebody that might want to go that direction. And one of the cool things about Open Media Vault that does set it apart from TrueNAS is that you can run it on a Raspberry Pi. It doesn't yes. have to be x86. Um, that that yeah. alone could get that could make that an option for some people that didn't otherwise have an option for that. So. Yeah, that it's the ARM compilation is pretty awesome because you, you can also look up like some Raspberry Pi storage projects. Um, you'll land eventually on Jeff Gearling and the Petapi <laughs> project, I think it is, um, but not everyone's yeah, going to build Petabyte, a Petabyte. Uh, yeah. yeah, he if, if you were interested in building one, Jeff's definitely got that covered. But it's cool that you can look up a few of these really neat little projects um, based on single board computing and low power that you can build with open media vault like i understand that use case for it because I, I don't use open media vault but people say why don't you do some videos on it i just don't use it enough i think jason a couple and there's a couple other people that have done videos on it um and they're almost always centered around some of the lower power stuff which is great i mean it's got it if that's your use case absolutely i don't see any reason not to use it i just don't really use it i think the only reason i might not use it which i don't even know if this is a valid reason to you know give i'll give that disclaimer um last i looked uh, admittedly over a year ago the development team was very small i want to say it was one person or maybe just a few and as a business it's kind of hard for me like um when you have a, a smaller development team it's like if there's any vulnerabilities are you keeping up on that now a common rebuttal to any uh statement like that is going to be well it's open source it's based on debian debian gets security updates so yeah of course it's secure but then i counter with that usually with but there's custom code that isn't part of debian that custom code is where some vulnerabilities or vulnerability chaining can happen i'm not saying there's any security concerns with open media vault at all so take that with a grain of salt but i do think sometimes you, you have to at least look at the environment to see um how active they are in security and maybe everything is fine and they're you know on top of their game for all i know i'll just assume they are unless i find otherwise but that's the only thing that would probably make me caution but uh again if it's uh if they're on top of things take that with a grain of salt it's yeah. uh, definitely a great solution every time i use it like um i may not feel like the interface is as good as truenas but it's pretty darn good especially when a lot of commercial ones have a horrible interface and you pay money for that so um, that's a completely different thing. Now, 
the next one I want to take, I'm going to try to summarize this as best I can, because I feel like we're going to do an entire episode about this. So I guess you could kind of consider my answer to be a preview of, you know, the direction I might go with it. But the question was um, in regards to, it uh, looks like from Chris, in regards to TeamViewer, and this is one of the many remote management mm. questions on here. And what I want to do is kind of set some initial picks that people could take away right now. And then in the future, we can deep dive into any of these. Um, specifically, Ramina and X2Go are two things that I'm going to bring up. Now, what I like about Ramina is that it's basically a client to connect to something that's serving a remote desktop, whether it's VNC, RDP, X2Go, SSH, whatever. It, it doesn't matter. It's in your repositories if you're running Linux. And what I like about this is that with Ramina, you can have all of your connections saved. So it doesn't matter if you have like some Microsoft servers, some Linux servers. In one dropdown, one menu, you can have all your servers listed regardless of their OS. Click on the one you want. Even if it's just you know straight SSH over a terminal, you can add that in there too. And then in one app, you have all your remote connections regardless of the backend technology that they use. So I think it's like, instead of having a VNC client, an RDP client, and all these others, you can have everything in one. So I think that as far as connecting two remote desktops, Ramina yeah. is definitely the way to go. As far as like, you know, presenting a desktop to share, um, I, I, isn't it true that RDP is open source now, or am I mistaken? I don't think it's, I think it's been reverse engineered. So I wouldn't say it's open okay. source, but it, I do know, and I have not spent much time testing it, that Ubuntu has the ability in there now to emulate RDP so you can connect using RDP. But then okay. you're also using a reverse engineered open source client like Ermina that also reverse engineered it. So you, it, it's kind of how um, SMB works. It's Microsoft's protocol, but you can actually start a SMB share on TrueNAS and then use it in Samba to Samba, you know, using it in Linux, but technically you're just two pieces of reverse engineer running on a protocol that was reverse engineered. Uh, and it's right. kind of how RDP is. It's not, to my knowledge, open source at all or an open, uh, well-documented standard, but it's not something Microsoft is pursuing people for, for making, for using it, as I understand that, it. That last thing is key because I, I'm trying to get rid of some of my bias here. And I'm going to admit some bias, you know, against Microsoft, but also understand the reasoning for this because when I was first starting out with Linux, RDP, VNC, pretty much the only thing that existed at the time. And even VNC was kind of hard because you had different like providers and different packages and things, which made it a little confusing. But when I started with Linux, Microsoft was actively suing companies for using it. Okay. So yeah, because of that, um, in that time period, which, you know, we're talking what, I'm just going to guess and say probably um, early, mid 2000s, I'm, I'm kind of guessing here. My mentality was if it's Microsoft, it's gone. Like I, I, I don't want anything Microsoft installed on my equipment because they're suing my favorite operating system or people for using that operating system. They're not really, they're, as far as I know, they're not doing that now. So again, it, it's just sometimes it's hard to get rid of that. But because of that, I've always been... I don't know, not RDP though. That was, that was my whole slogan with you know, remote management. And then I discovered X2Go and then there's been no reason for me to consider anything else. Nowadays, I feel like Microsoft is not like they used to be. So maybe RDP is totally fine to use now, but with X2Go, I love it. It's great, it works well. You can present the entire desktop or an app. You can, you can have a headless server 
and it's, and I used to install like Caden Live for video editing. Yeah. And, and Tom, you remember this. You already know what I'm where I'm going with this. Um, where I would have like a server that was completely headless, but I have Caden Live installed on it, and I would be able to share Caden Live with uh, X2Go. So the app appears on my desktop as if it's running locally, but it's actually running off that server. And then what I would do is render the Caden Live job on that server, which had like 40 something cores and I'd hear the fans go crazy. It was great. Um, but X2Go, my point is, is that it gives you the option of have, of sharing just the app where yeah. you can present the app. There's a word for that. I'm trying to think publishing the app is what they call it. Yeah, there it is. Or the entire desktop, if you want that kind of thing. So considering that X2Go has all this functionality, it's still hard for me to recommend RDP. Not Now, now not because of you know bias against Microsoft, just because X2Go works so darn well that it's hard for me to consider other, other things. That being said, um, RDP exists, and it's something that will, will need to be covered. And um, leaving the bias out, people want to know about it, want to know how to use it. I think it's going to be a... Great episode, but um, I, I just wanted to get that X2Go recommendation out there because if right now you just want to know what to try, Remina, X2Go, Remina to connect to things and X2Go yep. to serve the things. So Now, and I'll mention when Marcus is kind of on the same topic and someone mentioned in the comments, but it's uh, something I was going to look at because it looks novel and a lot of people, uh, it's becoming popular. I really don't know how good our security is. So please, uh, I'm not giving this a security endorsement because until things get code reviewed, there may be some major flaws in there to allow for, uh, well, bad things to happen. But rustdesk.com, the open source virtual remote desktop infrastructure, it's kind of like a, mm -hmm. a team viewer so people can get remote support. I have not used this, but a few people have mentioned it to me. I think it's come up in my forums a couple of times. Um, I did see, I think, awesome open source did a video on how to get it set up. There's another YouTube channel called that. Just type in Rust Desk is what it's called. Um, but it's it looks pretty cool. Um, the challenge with any of these is like X2Go is going to use SSH as a transport layer. SSH is doing security handling at that point, so you're less concerned. When you use some of these other third-party products, everyone's excited about features, but I always first question asked is security. Um, if I expose this or if it's not, if it all behind a VPN, less of a chance you've reduced your threat surface. But if you're going to host this publicly or someone had commented they use it to help relatives uh, remotely, eh, well, hopefully that protocol has been vetted and secured and someone's taking a look at it. So uh, just a heads up on that. But RustDesk looks pretty cool, but I'm not endorsing its security for people looking for, because I know Home Labbers, one of the things you get to do is be tech support for family. I completely understand why that comment came from. <laughs> if if you yeah. chose that path and that <laughs> then or that path has been thrust upon you, um, then yeah, you do need some tools like that and team viewers become kind of expensive. So it's worth taking a look at. Uh, Key warning one more time about security. So I always talk yep. about security first. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's a, that's a great thing. Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention about X2Go is, is just use your imagination. And one example I'll give, I, I did a video a long time ago. You know, I don't know if you ever forget video, to, like what you covered in a video because you've done so many. I just know that I've, I've covered this where I had a Raspberry Pi, which of course might be memory constrained. And then using X2Go, I had Firefox running on a server with a bunch of RAM. And I used X2Go to present Firefox from that server onto the Raspberry Pi desktop as if it was a native install of Firefox. Now, what that means is that the memory, it's going to use some of the memory of Raspberry Pi. It's not like completely free, but 
the majority of the processing is being done on the server, which of course is crazy to have this like really expensive or maybe not expensive, but a huge server and then a Raspberry Pi as a front end. But it's cool, and it, and it gives some it gives the Raspberry Pi like almost like a thin client kind of um, thing, and that could be something that somebody might consider. Maybe you might have a server and then have Raspberry Pi desktops with all the apps running off the server. The only problem though is um, watching YouTube videos when you're sharing it from a server. You could probably expect choppiness and or the words not matching the lips if you're watching someone talk on YouTube, if it works at all. So it's really horrible for video. So so keep that in mind. But there's so many different things that you could do with these technologies. And I think that with HomeLab, we just love to find new ways to use things, whether it was intended for that or not. And that's another example of that. So, yep. Um. So. What's the next question? You want to do 119? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that. Um, now, this answer isn't going to be what anyone wants to hear, but it's just the <laughs> honest answer. Um, I really don't know anything about salt stack, so I'm right. not in a position to teach it at this time. It doesn't mean that I won't get to it. I yeah. want to cover it. Yes, I'm probably in favor of Ansible because I'm obsessed with it. But I, I do understand that everybody wants to use Ansible. Some people want to use other things. And if nothing else, and I think that's what this person is alluding to, they want to know like what's the difference or how it compares, which I also want to know as well. The issue is my backlog is at least 30, somewhere between 30 to 50 topics deep right yes. now. So um, I wish we had more hours in the day like, um, you know, it's like one person trying to cover all of DevOps, all of HomeLab, all of Linux. That's a very big uphill battle. So I'm hoping to cover this. It's definitely on my radar. It's on my list. But in to between, be honest, probably if we not. find an expert, we will bring them on the show, though. So we, we happen true. to. Yeah, um, I'll have to see because I don't know. I can't think of any of even in my fairly large circle of developers. Um, I don't know any of them with the exception of David Burke, who runs Security Onion, who uses SaltStack. He's the only person I can even think of. And he's focused, obviously, on Security Onion. But I know, I think they still use SaltStack as part of their build process in there. But it's, I don't know that it's a lesser used tool. Um, it's used in big projects, uh, for sure. It's definitely out there. Um, but I don't have an expertise. It Neither does Jay in it. So we're not sure we're going to be able to do a SaltStack yeah. episode anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, did you hear that? Like, I'm hearing this strange sound. It sounds like a bunch of keyboards going, probably, if I had to guess, Twitter people that are on Twitter that are listening to this, um, at tweeting somebody who's probably some kind of expert. And chances are, by the time we're done recording, we probably have like four yeah. tweets from somebody. And I, I'm hoping that's the case, because that would be really cool to, to know yeah. who it is people want us to bring on and Oh, if you can God. connect us with a salt stack expert, we'll bring him on the show. Cause we, yeah. we, is of all the people I do know for all kinds of different things, that's not one of them. <laughs> and same with OpenStack. I, I love OpenStack. I don't feel I'm at the level I need to be today. So we had somebody on to, mm -hmm. to help talk about that. So that's absolutely a yeah. great way to handle that. So people can get the info they need without waiting. So, yep. All right. All right. On to the next one. I am scanning the questions oh. right now. 120 is interesting, and it's kind of a yeah. new question, but hey, guys, love the show. Fellow Michigander, so awesome. Uh, 
Question about Docker Compose containers. I'm using SnapRaid running sync on my NAS nightly, but sometimes my containers are writing data interfering with the process. My thought is to run cron jobs to start and stop those containers to set time, but having issues getting it set up. Any advice about the right way to go about this? So it sounds like they want to snapshot their containers, but have them in a stop state to do it. What's the best methodology? Well, I think it's, I'm not really sure if I'm going to be the most helpful on this one because it seems like there's, it almost seems like it's worded as a race condition. It's writing, you know, the individual says, sometimes my containers are writing data and interfering with the process. Um, so I haven't used SnapRaid personally, so I'm not sure if this is a SnapRaid specific thing. And let me know if I'm interpreting the question wrong, um, if you're interpreting it different, Tom, than I am. But I'll just I'll just say what I do. It, there's probably no value to this individual because I'm running TrueNAS and they may not be running that. But what I like to do is have a NFS share where you have um, a directory, like in TrueNAS, you can have different data stores, um, and then have the directory named after the app. And then yeah. all the apps kind of just have their config files there. So the beauty of that is you can, even if you delete the container, since the storage is on NFS, the container comes back up, it reads its data, then it, it's like nothing ever happened. But you can also have a snapshot schedule on TrueNAS to snapshot that data directory. So if you want to you know, revert back to a previous config, you just do that in TrueNAS, and the next time the container comes up, it'll do that. Uh, I don't know about SnapRate. Well in this regard though the problem individually this person's having yeah and i imagine so it should be and we'd probably have to understand the error message better you can just start and stop the docker containers that should be straightforward enough to have something that stops them and then the backup process run um and in, it's just a timing issue at that point so no data is in right. flight uh as obviously if the, if the docker container and this is an example for you i use bitwarden um mm -hmm. I, I don't want to snapshot anything in bitwarden uh because it's a database driven at the back end so you option a start and stop it option b is what i chose and what option b is i export and do a database uh, dump to a file so i don't worry about data in flight there's often i mean if you're starting and stopping vms if that's the only way you can do it, then that's the way you chose to do it. Ideally, because the containers and all the Docker stuff should be ephemeral and just be whatever. I can destroy and rebuild them anytime, focus on the data itself. And outside of databases, most of the reading and writing, you can just grab a snapshot of the data at any given time. But transactional things like database, the best way to back those things up is to uh, run an export tool against the database. So I can grab a snapshot, even, for example, with our uh, database that runs our invoicing system, uh, mm -hmm. invoice data, we're running regular backups of the database. You can set up a, either a whole separate database server to send it to. So you always have the data and it's doing a commit of that time as opposed to the less ideal, especially when you get into the enterprise space situation is shutting down a VM. I mean, you don't want to do that, but of course you want to have those backups. So think about the things that are in flight or how you can take while it's running and do an export to a location as your backup. That's a just a better overall strategy for backing things up too. Yeah. And, and cron is probably, I mean, if you don't have Kubernetes or some kind of containerization thing going on, which let's face it, not everybody needs that. Right. Uh, unless you're wanting to learn Kubernetes, it's like, do you want to maintain that? I, I feel like, the problem this individual is having would be solved with Kubernetes, but then I'm not going to recommend Kubernetes because I could be recommending a burden depending on if they like that technology or want to run that. 
So in lieu of that, I would say a cron job, I can't think of a, I'm sure there's an easier, better way, but personally, yeah. I think that's going to be probably the best way to go for now, at least, but maybe if somebody has a better way, they can write in and we can share that. Yeah. Um, did you have time to read the person's, the person had a whole blog post right up on 121. I just noticed that it had that on there. Yeah, I'm going to scan it very quickly here and see if it um, comes up. You but... do that. And let me explain the challenge yeah. to our audience here. I have a problem struggling with and recently came up with a solution. Wanted to get your guys' opinion on it. How do you handle scheduling Ansible playbooks when my SSH key has a passphrase on it? Uh, yeah. And I think uh, normally use an SSH agent on my .bashrc so I can type it once and done for the session. But there isn't a session to speak of when you're running it via cron. And I believe without even, while Jay's thinking about this, I believe the way that a lot of people handle it is you just have multiple SSH keys and you have one that's designed with limited uh, scope to the Ansible system. So you'll have a different SSH key with a more limited scope of what commands it can run tied to Ansible. Is that, is that me guessing at the well, right way to do it? That that would work. But immediately I'm thinking that's going to be like a huge um, administrative burden because if you think about with, with sudo, right, when you allow things, uh, most people just allow a user access to everything. A better way to do it, of course, is allow the user via sudo to run binaries that it wants to run. So, for example, if all you want to do is shut a server down, then you're going to give the user access to do that one thing. If you want, if you're running on Debian, you want the uh, the user to be able to install packages in sudo. You have to give them access to apt so they can do that. But the problem, though, is you're going to keep adding individual things to sudo and it's just going to be ridiculous to maintain. Um, but so, but the SSH key is definitely a problem. If there's a passphrase, the passphrase, it, what you hope for is that if the key leaks, that the individual is not going to be able to use that key because they don't have the passphrase. So right. the mindset is great. This individual has got their mind in the right place for sure. But the issue though, is you're not present to type that key in. Now, my opinion is that just don't use Ansible with SSH. I know most people are like spitting out their coffee right now. There, there's probably some people raging like that's exactly the way Ansible was designed. You're telling us not to use it the way that it was designed. Um, I've had nothing but problems with Ansible using it with SSH. Uh, for example, um, like I've talked about before, my workstations, laptops, and servers are all managed by Ansible. But servers, it's fine because they're usually on all the time. But what if you you turn your servers off at night? Then your Ansible server, if it's separate, can't access it. It's going to keep erroring and send you error messages. Or you know, if you have like alerting via email, it's going to send you errors. So you have you wake up in the morning and try to reach the server ten times with the servers off because you're saving power. It can't access it. It gets complicated to tell Ansible to run only certain during certain times. But then it's worse if you also maintain your laptops and desktops. What if you take your laptop with you, you put it in your bag, it's suspended, it can't be reached. There's going to be errors. So, and then you have this problem here with SSH passphrases where, you know, you don't want that SSH key to leak out, obviously. And if it does, you again, you hope that there's, the, there's a passphrase on that. The person who stole the key doesn't have that passphrase, so they can't use it. But then you have this problem right here where you can't really use it unless you take the passphrase away. Now, my solution is Ansible pull. Yep. Um, it's not a common way to run it, but the more, I mean, I've been using that solely like 
for the longest time. I started with SSH as my method as well, and I've had nothing but problems, like I mentioned. So what Ansible pull will do is it's kind of like the inverse of Ansible, where you give it a Git repository, and you could tell it to only run if changed. It could pull that down, and there is a way to make the configuration different per machine, uh, which is you know the first challenge people run into, but that, that can be solved. And then what you have is that when the machine is on, it pulls down Ansible, runs it via localhost or against localhost. There's no SSH keys at all in this situation. And as long as you make the, the Git repository private, no one else can grab that and use it. But even then, you could use Ansible Vault to encrypt things that are secret in the repository, even though it's private, if someone still managed to get it and you encrypt all the things that are secret, well, I mean, they can't read that information. So you're protected in that way. And then you have all the machines just using Ansible that way, and it just works so much better. But then the problem becomes, you know, you have some servers where you do want the error message because they're 24 seven and you don't want like Ansible to silently fail because if it's not able to pull it down and run, you're, you might not also get, um, you know, you might not get an alert. So the solution there is to use healthchecks.io, which is something that you can hook into any cron job or any task or something you're running. And you could have one task per server and, and tell it, if you haven't received a ping from this Ansible script in, you know, I don't know, three, four days, send me an email. So that way, if something is you know failing silently, um, healthchecks.io will give you a message that it hasn't heard from that server in a while. So that way, if there's a specific issue, you can go tackle it. So, and I feel like Ansible pull solves all of these problems, but since Ansible is heavily designed to be used via SSH, and that's how like every tutorial in, on the planet uses it, um, I feel like a lot of people don't even know that Ansible pull is a thing. They're just not aware of it. Right. So that's what I would do. Yeah, definitely that's an easy solution uh, for that one. I, I, Ansible, Jay's got a whole bunch of videos on uh, Ansible as well, including, you know, some of the whole auto-deploy scripts and everything else, the Kickstarter scripts. So uh, check Jay's, Jay, learn Linux TV channel for that, and you'll find plenty of information on it. There is an Ansible pull video there too. So I have like this entire series, but then there's some side episodes that are not numbered as part of the series, but they're considered part of the series, one of which is, Ansible pull. There's one in Ansible vault teaches you how to encrypt things within your um, configuration. So if you go through all that, you'll definitely know how to use it. Yep. Um, and I'll sum up a couple of the questions together. Someone said they had a lot of trouble getting uh, things set up in ButterFS. Jay has a whole video on that as well. So he's got the tutorial put together and, and dives deep into getting ButterFS going on a Linux install. So that'll hopefully answer both of those. And the ButterFS NAS projects, the only one that I'm aware of because more than one person messages, but it's Rockstore, R-O-C-K-S-T-O-R. Uh, we haven't tested it, but it is something uh, from our ButterFS episode that people ask, like, what, you know, what NAS is built on this? And that's the so far the only one that anyone's messaged us. So <laughs> and I mean, there's the Synology, of course, but talking specifically yeah. about things you can run yourself on your own hardware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I assume is what that is. I haven't used it. Yep. Um, Next one is we covered this back on uh, what was it? Do, do, do. It would have been episode 28 about owning your own domain. Someone had asked. And uh, so we won't 
dive too much into it, but someone asked about, you know, should I get my own domain for my email? Yes, you should, because that way you own your email address, you know, at your username.com or how we are, you know, you know, at each of our own domains. Um, but then the next part is what about hosting the mail server yourself? We don't really recommend people to do that. I, I still get a lot of people who um, they try to set my forums. My forum will see that you're on a blacklist for spam. And if you're on the blacklist for spam, I just tell people, sorry, you're probably a spammer, but then I'll realize it's their name and they'll message me via Twitter or some other method. How do I get off the spam list? I've been, you know, I can't, people can't email me. I can't email back because I'm on spam list. Um, it's just the tediousness of running your own mail server. So we don't really yeah. encourage that part as much. Um, I used to be a mail server administrator. I'm not talking uh, because I just don't like doing it. I talk about the impracticality of uh, managing a domain and wanting emails to go through. If you look, you'll see that lawrencesystems.com is held by Google. So yes, even myself, I have surrendered. And for years, I was hardcore run your own mail server guy because I was a mail server admin starting in the 90s. That's what pulled me into uh, heavy Linux stuff. So yeah, it's still not something I'd really push or recommend here in 2022. What I would recommend though is personally, I've used both um, Hover and I've used uh, Fastmail. Fastmail is my favorite. It requires a little bit more setup, but the interface is called Fastmail for a reason. The web interface is really fast. And you could just get your own domain. Hover is a great place to buy a domain if you don't already have one. And Hover themselves, they offer an email service, so they maintain it. With And then I think it was, last I looked, it was $25 a year for a mailbox and then whatever your domain renewal yeah. is on top of that. So that could be a, a great way to go. You can set it up with Thunderbird or whatever, or Fastmail, pretty much the same thing. But you can pretty you can pretty much create the experience of running your own email server by first subscribing to one of those technologies. And then you can set up a next cloud server and you could actually have it pull in your mail via like an SMTP client and give you that webmail experience. If you, that, that is, if you don't like the webmail that comes with Hover and Fastmail because they have their own. But you could have that as part of a suite like G Suite, but in Nextcloud, you have your online document editing, you have your email in there as well, at your own domain, and you get all the benefits of running your own email server without actually running your own email server. That's someone else's problem, and you get all the benefits with that uh, method. So I would recommend looking into one of those and um, possibly even Nextcloud on top of that. So definitely some options there. Um, yeah. Wendell did, and I, I like the video series a lot, the Forbidden Router. And I may uh, readdress some of that because I did a video a long time ago about how to build everything into one box. Um, and Wendell covered it too. Wendell didn't cover a couple of the details of it, so I thought maybe that's an opportunity. I'll talk to Wendell and maybe me and him collab on it a little bit. Um, but I don't have a problem with it. But people ask, like, why am I so hard on people about don't virtualize it? I'm like, well it's because of the extra complexities that type of thing adds. So it's a, uh, it becomes a real challenge to troubleshoot things. Wendell's little mitigation of uh, doing a drive pass through so you can reboot your virtualization directly back to a PF sense. Uh, so you can get things up and running fast. It's kind of a clever workaround for it, but it's still just that it's a workaround for when there's problems with your virtualization system or the fact mm -hmm. that you lose internet every time you have to update your virtualization server. Um, so, right. yeah, it's and, something yeah. I, I don't know if it's a, really a home lab show topic, but maybe I'll do a video on it for my channel. I think you I think it's important to understand. I mean, it, when when we're asked, like, why are you, you know, do you have something like we have stigma against that? I mean, we kind of do. But <laughs> part of it is because these services and these soft 
pieces of software were not made to run like that. So you are running them in a way that the developer did not intend. But then again, um, we always run things in ways that weren't intended. We're home lab people. I mean, technically having a home lab is is not the norm. So I totally get the desire and and everything to do this because you know I don't think you're not supposed to do it like that has ever stopped a single home lab person. That probably makes them want to do it more. But you you just understand you will run into additional challenges. And this isn't the way the developer intended. If you are okay with that and you're clever, like you know, Wendell obviously is, and you want to find a way to work around those types of things, it will be a challenge. Maybe that's what you want, and that's fine. If you want that challenge, absolutely. Uh, sometimes a challenge is fun. But keep in mind, um, I personally don't think, and maybe I'm wrong, and you could correct me, you probably know, I don't think PFSense is developed for virtual machines or to be running a VM. I just don't feel like it is. It's usually not for that. They, they have a specific um, support for VMware, but everything else is kind of, you know, this is this happened with one of the updates when it broke everything in Hyper-V. So people that were running Hyper-V ran into a bunch of problems with the update. And I think they just don't spend as much time testing uh, like the Hyper-V solution. And I feel like they'd spend even less time testing the XCPNG solution, although I've got it running in XCPNG and there's a write-up on how to do it, which mm -hmm. is what Wendell chose for his forbidden router. So uh, it's pretty cool. And the last thing um, they had asked in here, and I have not had experience with it, and there's actually a few different versions of this. I think these are probably forks from each other, but I don't I don't have the whole genealogy of how they got here because there's certainly some history, but Neth server n-e-t-h server.org mm -hmm. this is one of those build it all into one box it's your file server it's your mail server it's your vpn it's your firewall it's your groupware server it's your active directory emulation uh, it's your chat server these are kind of like appliances that throw everything in one box which are kind of novel um mm -hmm. they're only as good as their support there's been a lot of projects like this over the years that come and go um, unless they have a good business model around them, uh, they just they're hard to maintain because you're throwing so many different functions into a single box. It also has a interesting threat surface because now your file server is also your firewall server. Now provides your firewall servers maintain well, great, but you have one box to do all the things, but you only have one box that could be you get owned and all your things at once simultaneously. I don't know really how I feel about those anymore. I, I really comes down to how well they're done. So I haven't particularly used Nest Server. There was another one. There was another company and I can't remember their name, but HP bought them. They rebranded it. So there was another open source project that became an HP project, which oh, yeah. is it. They have an interesting license model where they sell it now. But if you buy an HP server, it comes free with certain HP servers. So like I, that was like their business model. Like HP owns it to try to push hardware. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't used any of those projects. When they throw everything into one appliance, the one challenge you have is when you want to do something custom and you start tweaking it, sometimes the updates break because I've had people contact me about the previous one. It seemed to be popular in a few school districts. Um, people changed a couple of things and the whole thing fell apart. And then they had to buy a support contract to figure out how to put it back together. Um, it was a lot of problems with the upgrades. So use it at your own risk. I don't have any direct experience. Uh, maybe they work even better than I'm suggesting. I just know my past experience with them, but I haven't specifically used Neth server, N-E-T-H server. So one, one thing I'll mention quickly about that I thought was pretty clever and borderline hilarious um, when it comes to running PFSense in a virtual machine um, an example of it working very well, actually, is um, a, a company I worked for quite a while back. And I don't know if OpenVPN is still hard to build custom, but back then, 
the team I was working on was tasked with setting up a VPN server. They didn't want to renew whatever hardware they had. They wanted just to do it. Um, so someone on the team looked at it at OpenVPN and what's required to set it up. They're like, uh, no, I'm not doing that. So they just installed PFSense into a VM and then only used it as the VPN server for the company. And no other function on that um, entire installation of PFSense was used, only the OpenVPN, because back then at least, I don't know if it's still the case now, it was easier to set up OpenVPN on PFSense than it was to build a OpenVPN server. So in that case, it worked fine because it was just the company's VPN server. But um, you know, that's there, there are some edge cases where it might work well, but in general, Tom and I, we, I mean, we, we don't, we can't cover all the edge cases, so proceed at your own risk. Yep. Um, one of the other questions in here, and I think this is the last one we have, mm -hmm. is, is we covered all the um, PAM and access management systems, but it's, is there any open source networking gear such as uh, switches, access points besides CDRT or tomato or roll your own? Um, Vios is the one that comes up. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, is it still called Vios? Yeah, the open source firewall router platform. Hmm. But there's some challenges with using some of these. And there's a couple other ones out there. One of them is even stranger. Uh, Serve the Home actually covered it. Um, the name eludes me at the wall, but there's a couple of these unique softwares that run on some of the Dell switches, but they run specifically on these enterprise switches. Vios is definitely among those but they're different open source switch software and the enterprise space actually does use some of this uh because the way they're custom designing hardware and they have very niche use cases these are not my understanding even from watching serve the home they're, they're not like extremely well documented but a lot of people use them in that the hyperscaler space, the Facebooks of the world, the big, big companies are using some of these. So it's not, it's not like the same as just grabbing some uh, DWRT. There's like this small, like we can reflash these small routers or we go to the <laughs> enterprise market, but the everything in between, I haven't really seen a lot out there. Now, maybe it exists, um, but I'm not really certain about it, but VYOS dot uh, io is their site they have a rolling release for it they got a bunch of it's been around for a while um it used to be there's a whole history of it, it used to be something else because it's still the basis of it is actually what runs like your edge routers from ubiquity and some of the other ubiquity was based on some of that so uh, it's it's interesting because it's a neat thing out there but it's not it's not like uh really mainstream yeah, as the best way I can say where you can just go, hey, I'm going to grab a switch and make it open source. And the other challenge with that is many of these switches have a lot of very specific design hardware in them. And so you can't get each of these companies to agree how to design them universally. So it's hard to write an operating system that universally works with them. That's true. I, I would like to see if, it, again, if it doesn't already exist, even if it's just x86 based, because, you know, we can we can get we could find on eBay a small desktop that has multiple gigabit ports on it. Um, the Protectly ones are an example of that, but there's many others. And the ability to have something like PFSense that's just a switch that just grabs the network ports and gives you a menu and can integrate into um, they can integrate together and it's all open source. I mean, something like that would be I would I would say an overnight success in Home Lab. If it if it, something like that came out and they did it right, I feel like every home labber in the world would definitely want to try it out. So I'm hoping we get something on the level of PFSense eventually, but, you know, for switches as well, router switches and have different versions or something. But um, there's no shortage of hardware and things like that keeps hardware out of the landfill. 
and we can use things that we wouldn't use otherwise. So I hope uh, if it doesn't already exist, that it does. I don't know if Vios is that thing, but if anyone knows of anything we don't know, then let us know about it. Yep. Uh, the other one is, uh, I see someone posting there now, I remember this one, uh, the Disaggregated Network Operating System, Danos, project enables community collaboration across network hardware forwarding operating system uh, layers. Danos is initially based on the AT&T DNOS software framework of a more open cost. Um, what, the trick you have to learn with some of these is what they work on mm -hmm. and uh, find that. Now, the good news is you can usually find some of this hardware on eBay, um, but it's it's some learning curves to uh, messing around with it. So that's definitely a... Uh, <laughs> That's going to be a challenge. It's not like there's, it's, it's not as well. Ubiquity is an easy example of a company that makes things really easy with their Unify system. Mm -hmm. And even then, it, people get confused in how to set up VLANs and networking. When you start doing this all from the command line, Cisco is well documented for how Cisco IOS does things. And the way it does it, you know, can be uh, argumentatively complicated or convoluted, but there's still a lot of documentation. You narrow down further when you start using these there may be less documentation you can find on it. So uh, it's starting at the deep end, but if your goal mm -hmm. is to work in the enterprise data center, yeah, you'll probably, it's probably worth learning. So. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of stuff out there. Absolute. So much stuff on there. Sonic OS is another one too. So. Wow. I we're getting a lot of good recommendations. This yeah. Sonic cool. OS is, I think that's the one that served the home covered is they did a video on using Sonic OS. So they will serve the home has got a great enterprise channel for covering a lot of, they just, Patrick dives deep into a lot of the switches. Uh, I imagine there's a massive crossover from our audience because he's covered so many of these devices and things like that. And he, I know he did one on specifically, I think Sonic OS running on some Dell switches. So yeah. Then someone did say yes, server the home did cover it. So cool. So there's, there's some more reading on there. I don't know anything about it because I just don't use it. Um, It's not, it, it goes outside of the things that we consult on. So it's not something we run into very much so i'm really hoping that sonic os has the classic uh sega jingle from the 90s when it boots up because i know that would be a missed opportunity he's got to do the little uh little sonic. and then the sonic <laughs> runs back and forth. yeah it's the classic stuff come on guys you gotta we gotta have that patched in it's open source someone's got to yeah yes <laughs> all right um last couple questions i've seen them roll by and i don't want to leave them unanswered one of the questions people had is um talking about in the home lab, does PFSense care as much about some of the different network cards? I don't think most people will ever take advantage of some of the more advanced Intel network card where it has certain offloading on there for their home lab. I don't picture them doing it. Not saying you can't. So yep. I don't really, don't fret too much about that. Basically go get yourself in um, most of the time and please stop routing storage home lab people. I need to do a video on it. So I will, but um, I'm going to do a video on storage design because a lot of people seem to want to go 10 gig under PF sense when they don't have a 10 gig internet coming in because they want to route everything that sometimes includes things that shouldn't be part of the route. Uh, you can do that if as an exercise, but it's also not the more common way to do it. So you're fine with your, unless your internet's faster than one gig, one gig is fine for your uh, internet on your PF sense or even your internal. You can have all the fun 10 gig stuff. You put all the same things that need to talk at 10 gig or faster, 40 gig for those of you that are a little more advanced or 25 gig and 100 gig connections for those of you with home lab with a budget. But yeah, so stick with your standard one gig Intels and you're fine. It's even what we're using mostly at my office because we're not trying to route, we're not trying to route 10 gig through the PF sense, although we have 10 and 25 gig at my office. It's interesting you mentioned that because I, I now have that problem. 
I, I now have a connection that's faster than a gig. Um, long story how I ended up with that subscription, but same problem. My uh, EF sense is one gig, so I'm not going to benefit from that extra 200 megabits in my case. Yeah. <laughs> so, I need to solve that problem myself, actually. Yep. Yep. All right. Okay. But we have routing storage. Someone said, ouch. Yeah, that's look, we, we yeah. see a lot of consulting. That's where, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I have a business. We do a lot of consulting work. And sometimes we've seen so many things go wrong. That's what you see as a consultant. They don't call you because they're happy. They call you because something isn't working right. And we see some interesting things. So routing storage, it's a, it's not the right way to do it. But boy, is it popular. <laughs> yeah, if, if it's not something like that, it's definitely DNS. Yeah, yeah, if it's not that is DNS. So or MTU. Everyone tries to mess with the MTU. Uh one thing about MTU, it has to be consistent across all your switches, or you'll have really interesting results. So yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work under heavy load, but it seems to work under light load. Do you mess with the MTU? <laughs> mm -hmm. Don't do that. Don't do yeah. That. Uh, I said a lot of things back to default. That's um, that's the secret of consulting. For anyone who wants to know the secrets of my business, we set lots of things to default. <laughs> Quit touching all those knobs until you know what they do. Once you know what they do, then twist all the knobs. So that's what Home Labs for. Twist those knobs, have some fun, play with some projects. And uh, I think that's all we got, Jay, right? Yep, I think so. Awesome. See you guys next week. And uh, me and Jay will hammer out what we're going to do next week because we got to dive into one of these topics that we talked about. Oh, yeah, we got to definitely cover this stuff. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks.